And if you want to live in a democracy, you better be skeptical about everything that is said by anybody who is powerful. And, you know, I think that's one of the guiding themes that I've uh, that has been an important part of my worldview. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Just when I think I've discovered every herb and supplement in the known universe, another one comes along and gets my attention. And I would be talking about our friends over at Sovereignty.co. These guys stand behind their herbal products so much. And I thought this was fake when I got the, the ad copy, but it's your favorite money back guarantee. So if you don't like their products, and I think this is nuts, but they're doing it, they will gladly purchase your favorite supplement of choice as well. So they're going to give your money back and buy you another supplement. That's how much they believe in them. And to be honest, I do too. I've been using this stuff every day for about a month now at the time of this recording. Two products. One is called Purpose, which is great for daytime alertness and focus. Has a little bit of caffeine from organic coffee berry and something called Zoom RX, which is an extended release caffeine. And it also has CBG, which is a hemp product from hemp grown in California. It's got uh, seven plant-based ingredients in all. Green tea extract, turmeric, blueberry, increases nitric oxide, leads to more arousal, better sex. And uh, all the ingredients are all natural. Fermented herbs, all this kind of crazy stuff. It's amazing. It comes in a little uh, pack. You just slice that pack open, put it in some water, drink it. It tastes delicious. It basically tastes like a tea and gets you lit up and ready to work, but not too hyped. And then their other product is Dream. And that's meant for nighttime relaxation and rest. Very restorative and rejuvenating sleep due to its CBN contact, another derivative of hemp. And these guys tested this product on hundreds of people with the Aura Ring and found that 76% of the people had improved sleep in some capacity while using this product called Dream. And I got to say, it's been great for my sleep too. So it's a broad spectrum hemp extract, including other herbs that just chill you out and help you sleep. So the two products you want to look for are Purpose and Dream, and you can find them at Sovereignty.co slash Luke. That's Sovereignty.co slash Luke. You spell that S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y, Sovereignty.co slash Luke. And again, no discounts here, but they're going to give your money back and buy you your favorite supplement if you don't like this stuff. You can't go wrong. This here podcast is brought to you by Danette May and Mindful Health LLC. They make a product called Cacao Bliss and it is absolutely insane. Now, back in the day, I used to have to take about 50 ingredients to make an elixir or a smoothie, get them from all over the place, mix them together, make a big mess, took up a bunch of space in the cabinet. And uh, this product here, Cacao Bliss, has taken that pain away. Now I have amazing ceremony grade organic raw cacao, turmeric, black pepper to maximize the results and the bioavailability of the turmeric. You know how that works. MCT powder, 
which uh, makes you feel satiated longer. It's a good healthy fat and uh, actually helps you lose weight, as ironic as that is. It's got cinnamon, which improves your body's ability to digest glucose and reduce your desire for sugary treats. It's got monk fruit, which satisfies the old sweet tooth just as much as sugar with zero calories and doesn't affect your blood sugar. It's got coconut nectar, which acts as a prebiotic and feeds the healthy gut bacteria in your lower intestine. It's got lacuma, which adds a really delicious hint of caramel-like flavor and has wound healing properties. I've loved lacuma for a long time, as well as mesquite. A lot of people don't know about mesquite, so when I found Cacao Bliss, I was stoked that they included this. It's a sweet and nutty superfood that doesn't cause blood sugar spikes and helps boost your immune system. And they round it out with Himalayan salt, which contains over 84 minerals and trace elements while helping to balance your pH levels. So this is the ultimate superfood elixir, but it really tastes like a chocolate milk. I mean, straight up, it's like tastes like a dessert. So you can make it hot, you can make it cold, mix it with coffee. Sometimes I make like a kind of a cold chocolate milk with it. It's just absolutely fantastic. And you can get yourself some over here at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. That's earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. The 15% off code is luke15. And while you're at it, check them out on Instagram at earthechofoods. And you can see the product that I'm talking about. It's called Cow Bliss. It's delicious. It's healthy. Go get some. You asked for it. You got it. I present to you episode 299 with Robert F. Kennedy, shot in the dark, blowing the whistle on the vaccine industry and COVID. Please share this episode far and wide before it gets censored due to its explosive level of truth. Our guest requires no introduction, but in the interest of formality and officiality, I'll go ahead and give him one. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. serves as president of Waterkeeper Alliance, as well as founder, chairman of the board, and chief legal counsel for Children's Health Defense, and of counsel to Morgan & Morgan, a nationwide personal injury practice. He also happens to be the son of the late Robert Kennedy and the nephew, of course, of JFK, John F. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy is an esteemed author with a long list of published books, including the New York Times bestseller, Crimes Against Nature. He was also named one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Planet for his success helping Riverkeeper lead the fight to restore the Hudson River. His reputation as a resolute defender of the environment and children's health stems from a litany of successful legal actions. He received recognition for his role in the landmark victory against Monsanto last year, yay, as well as the DuPont case that inspired the movie Dark Waters in 2019. And uh, man, I got to tell you, this was... Uh, a really meaningful conversation for me and, uh, you know, really one of my longstanding goals in terms of guests that I'd like to have on the show that are really making a difference. And uh, Mr. Kennedy did not disappoint, let me tell you. And uh, in fact, this conversation was, of course, recorded on video and you can watch it on YouTube. And for those of you that don't know, every single episode of this show, whether it's a Zoom recording or a live recording, is also available for your viewing pleasure on my YouTube channel. Now, this one, due to its controversial nature, could possibly be removed at some point. Although, uh, due to Mr. Kennedy's sane approach to this highly controversial topic of vaccines, COVID, etc., cetera, uh, I think we might slide under the radar. His credibility is absolutely solid. And uh, this gentleman is no conspiracy theorist, as you'll find in this conversation. He's dealing with hard, cold facts only. Here are some of the topics covered in the conversation. 
why he was motivated to make a career of legally protecting the environment and people from corruption and negligence. His incredible work with Waterkeeper Alliance, of which I'm a huge fan because I'm such uh, a proponent of water safety and preservation, why he supports vaccine awareness and safety testing. And we pose the question, did vaccines in the past actually work or was it sanitation and refrigeration that in fact slowed down disease? A shocking breakdown of Big Pharma's vaccine revenue and corruption, his vaccine work with President Trump and why it fizzled out, Fauci's shady past and conflicts of interest, the agenda of Bill Gates and the push for forced vaccinations. We also pose the question, if flu vaccines are not effective, how can a COVID vaccine possibly be? His thoughts on masks, lockdown, and all things COVID. This conversation is one that deserves to be shared far and wide. So again, please share with as many people as possible. Get ready to open your mind and do some very sane, critical thinking with the brave and wise Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) Here we are. Uh, Man, I'm really excited to have this conversation. You've been on my list of of target guests for quite a while now. And uh, the universe has aligned. And here we are finally. And uh, I've been listening to a lot of your content lately and am just so fascinated and curious about your point of view on some of the current events and all the work that you've been doing. So I thought perhaps, uh, you know, because we have a, a finite period of time and I could probably ask you questions all day long, being someone who's completely obsessed with water and the quality of drinking water, the quality of fishing, swimming water, I'd like to ask you how you first chose that as a venture to support in terms of environmentalism? How I got into water protection? Yeah. Um, Well, it was a natural fit for me because I grew up on the water. I grew up on the ocean. By the way, my voice is really bad today. And I I explain this sometimes when I do do electronic media that I used to have a very strong voice until I was 42 years old. And then I got struck by... This disease called spasmodic dystonia that makes my voice tremble like this. Usually, if I speak for a while, it starts to clear up. So I'm hoping that'll happen today. But um, yeah, water was just a natural fit for me. I grew up on the ocean, on the Atlantic. I was in the water every day. My father uh, taught us to uh, to do whitewater kayaking. I mean, when I was 10 years old, I was kayaking with some of the best whitewater in the, in the country and in the world. And I've been doing that my whole life. Um, and, uh, but I all love fishing and, you know, every water sport. Um, and then I be in 1984, I went to work for a group of commercial fishermen on the Hudson river who were whose livelihoods were being destroyed by pollution. So we have on the Hudson, the oldest commercial fishery in North America. It's 350 years old. Many of the people that I represented for 35 years on the Hudson were people whose families had been fishing the Hudson since Dutch colonial times. It was a traditional gear fishery. Um, it was They used the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians, the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam, and then passed down through the generations. And 
1966, Penn Central Railroad began vomiting oil from a four and a half foot pipe in the Croton Harmon rail yard. The oil went up the river on the tides. It blackened the beaches. It made the shad taste of diesel so that they couldn't be sold at the Folden Fish Market in New York City. And all of the people in this little fishing village called Crotonville, New York, it was one of the enclaves of the Hudson's commercial fishery, came together in an American Legion Hall. It's the only public building in the town. It was a very patriotic community. Crotonville had one of the highest mortality rates in World War II of any community in the country. Um, virtually the entire male population joined the Marines the day after Pearl Harbor. These weren't radicals. They weren't militants. They were people whose patriotism was rooted in the bedrock of our country. But that night they started talking about violence. Um, they talked about, somebody suggested that they put a match to the oil slick coming out of the Penn Central pipe and burn up the pipe. Somebody said they should roll up a mattress, jam it up the pipe and flood the rail yard with its own waste. Uh, somebody else suggested that they float a raft of dynamite <laughs> into the intake wow. of the Indian Point Power Plant. These are all, you know, Korean War vets, Vietnam War vets, and um, and World War II vets. And the, at that time, Indian Point Power Plant was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. And then a guy stood up who was a um, first lieutenant. Vietnam, and he had a combat veteran, Bob Boyle. He had come back, and he had become the outdoor editor of Sports Illustrated, writing about hunting and fishing. And he had written an article about angling in the Hudson two years before, and in researching that article, he came across an ancient navigational statute called the 1888 Rivers and Harbors Act that essentially allowed anybody who was harmed by pollution to um, to turn the polluter into the U.S. attorneys to create a case, turn the polluter in, and then collect a bounty. There's a bounty provision, and the law had never been enforced in 80 years. Um, but uh, he stood up, he, he had sent actually a copy of that law to the libel lawyers at Time Magazine, at Time Inc., which owns Sports Illustrated, and he said, is this still good law? And they sent him a memo back saying, in 80 years, nobody's enforced it, but it's still on the books. That evening when all these men and women, 300 people who came to that meeting were talking about violence, he stood up in front of them and he said, we should, he showed them the memo, he showed them the law, and he said, we shouldn't be talking about breaking the law, we should be talking about enforcing it. And they resolved at that time they were going to start a group called the Hudson River Fishermen's Association, which later became River, River Keeper. They were going to go out and track down and prosecute every polluter on the Hudson. And 18 months later, they collected the first bounty in United States history under this 19th century statute. They shut down the Penn Central Pipe for good. They got to keep $2,000. There were two weeks of wild celebration in the town. And then they used the money that was left over to go after Sebagigi, Tuck Tape, Standard Brands, American Cyanamid, the biggest corporations in America, and winning hundreds of thousands of dollars. In 1973, they collected the highest penalty in United States history against a corporate polluter. They got $200,000 from Anaconda Wire and Cable for dumping toxics at Hastings, New York. They used that money to construct a boat, which they called the Riverkeeper. And then in 83, they hired a, their first full-time Riverkeeper. They got a $2 million from Exxon that year use the money to, um, for stealing water from the Hudson. 
they got, they used that money to build this boat and to hire a full-time waterkeeper, a former commercial fisherman named John Cronin. He hired me uh, like nine months later as the prosecuting attorney for the group. And during my time there, we brought over 500 successful lawsuits against Hudson River polluters. We forced polluters to spend five and a half billion dollars on remediation. And today, Hudson, Hudson, when I started working on it, was a national joke. It caught fire. It turned different colors depending on what color they were painting the GM, the, the trucks at the GM plant in Terrytown. Um, it was dead water, zero dissolved oxygen for 20 mile stretches north of New York City, south of Albany. And uh, today it's the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more pounds of fish per acre, more biomass per gallon than any other waterway in the Atlantic Ocean. The miraculous resurrection of the Hudson inspired the creation of other water keepers, first on Long Island Sound, commercial fishermen there, and then on the Delaware, then San Francisco Bay. We own the waterkeeper name, Riverkeeper, Soundkeeper, Baykeeper, all of those. And we, um, we started that in 93. The first, I think, 16 waterkeepers started an umbrella group called the Waterkeeper Alliance, which I'm president of. And it's now the biggest water protection group in the world. And we have 350 waterkeepers. Each one has a patrol boat. Each one of them uh, has a full-time paid waterkeeper, and they all sue polluters. And we have them in 46 countries, where the we're the largest and um, and uh, and fastest-growing water protection group in the world. So that's kind of my evolution. And that's a long answer uh, to your your question about how I got into this racket. No, man, it's amazing, and and I thank you for doing that work. That's fantastic. It's uh. You know, it's, as I said, something that's near and dear to my heart, being a nature lover, but specifically water. And when I come across a body of water that's polluted, it's really sad, you know, because I just, it's, it's the lifeblood of the planet. And so I, I just come into you for that work. And thanks for the story. I actually didn't know all the backstory about it. So that's really cool. Uh, I guess I want to go into now, I mean, first thing I want to ask you actually is this. You've been so outspoken about the issues with vaccine safety and um, talking about 5G and things like that and, and other issues that, the, you know, the opposition has so much power uh, behind. And yet you remain, I don't, I'm curious how much you've been censored. I'm always kind of surprised when I see you on Instagram and you're really smart about posting studies and facts and it's not just hyperbole and you know, tinfoil hat stuff. It's, it's just fact. And perhaps that's why, but have you been facing as of late, some of the censorship that's happening to people that are outspoken about these type of issues? Yeah, but we've been censored for at least since 2008. Um, even before that, but since two, I published my first article in 2005 in Rolling Stone magazine. And, um, and that was an article that, uh, I mean, let me just tell you kind of how I got into this, and then I'll explain what, what happened, the kind of the history, the evolution of the censorship, because we've always had censorship. But I was suing coal burning, a group, probably about 40 coal burning power plants and cement kilns 
back in 2004, 2005, in 2003, the FDA published a report that said every freshwater fish in America had dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh. And it really struck me that we're living now in a science fiction nightmare where my children, the children of every other American, could now no longer engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth which is to go fishing with their father and mother in the local fishing hole and then come home and safely eat the fish. And all of the water keepers were united in thinking that mercury really was a huge threat to everything that we believed in and everything we cared about. We started suing culverting power plants, the principal source of mercury, and, and cement kilns, probably number two. And we started suing them. And a lot of the different water keepers were suing them in um, particularly in the provinces of Canada and in the U.S. And I was managing a lot of that litigation. I was going around the country and Canada uh, talking about it. And almost everywhere I had stopped to, you know, to give large speeches, of, you know, a thousand or two thousand people, there would be these women who would show up and sit in the front row. And they all kind of looked the same. They were very well-dressed. A lot of them were professionals. They were doctors, lawyers, pharmacists, scientists, psychologists, etc. And they all had intellectually disabled children. And they all believed that the vaccines, particularly mercury in the vaccines, had injured their children. And they would come up to me after these speeches and talk to me in kind of a, of a respectful but vaguely scolding way, saying, if you really are concerned about mercury in exposures to kids, you need to look at the vaccines and it's not something that I wanted to do because I, you know, uh, I had spent my, uh, my life um, or a lot of my life doing what essentially was a family business of working in the area of intellectual disabilities and children. My aunt, Eunice Shriver, who was my godmother, founded Special Olympics. I worked at Special Olympics almost every weekend when I was a kid, from when I was eight years old as a hugger and then a coach. Um, I worked for 200 hours at Wasaic Home for the Retarded when I was in high school in, in, um, upstate, up in the Hudson Valley, New York. Um, and I, you know, it's just, it was part of our family culture to be involved with, uh, particularly with children with intellectual disabilities. And, but it wasn't that I had kind of carved out my own area that I wanted to do with my life, which was to protect water and fisheries and wildlife, et cetera. And I didn't really want to get sucked back into, you know, into that. So, uh, I resisted when these women, and I didn't know anything about vaccines. So all my kids were vaccinated. I thought I never knew that there was any problem with vaccines. I just assumed they were, you know, great for you. And um, and then a woman, one of these women, came to my home in the summer of two thousand five. And her name was Sarah Bridges. She was a psychologist from Minnesota. And her son, Porter Bridges, had gotten a $20 million judgment from the vaccine court, federal court of claims that does vaccine. And it's where you go if you've been injured by a vaccine. And the court found that his autism was caused by the vaccine. And they gave him a $20 million settlement. She didn't want it to happen to anybody else. And she came to my house with a uh, a stack of scientific studies that was 18 inches deep. 
she found my house in Hyannisport, my little bungalow, and she put all those studies on my front porch. And she said, I'm not going to leave here until you read those. And, you know, I'm accustomed to reading science. It's, it's um, you know, I've had hundreds of environmental cases. Virtually all of them involve some kind of scientific controversy. So if I weren't comfortable reading science, I wouldn't be very good at my job. And I started reading these studies. And before I was six inches deep in this pile, I was struck by this huge delta between what the uh, what the regulatory agencies and the pharmaceutical companies were saying about vaccine safety and what the actual published peer-reviewed science was saying. And then I started calling up uh, regulatory officials who I knew, Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, my whole family knew them. You know, we're, my family is, is completely intertwined with the public health regulatory system in this country, the, the major institutes at NIH and HHS are called the Kennedy Krieger Institute and the Eunice Schreiber Institute. Um, my uncle, Ted Kennedy, was chairman of the health committee for 50 years in the United States Senate and was helping to pick these agency heads, dealing with them daily and, and winning budgets for them. Oh, you know, my family couldn't, there's no family that was closer to the public health regulatory apparatus in this country than my family. And I started calling them and asking them some basic questions. You know, one of the questions I asked um, uh, Francis Collins and, um, and Kathleen Stratton, who was the head at that time of, of the Institute of Medicine and Paul Offit, who is kind of one of the deities of vaccinology in this country, and they all said, but, you know, they all, when they couldn't answer questions, these regulatory officials would say, call Paul Offit, he'll know. And Paul Offit was not, um, it was an odd thing for government regulators to tell me, we can't answer that as Paul Offit, he's an industry guy. And so that kind of made me um, think, because you wouldn't, if I was calling EPA engineers to ask or scientists to ask about a problem, it would be very weird for them to direct me to somebody who has worked for the coal industry and say, you better ask him. Well, it was the right. same thing. Right. Oh, um, when I talked to Offit and Kathleen Stratton, I, I asked them the same question, which is, how can you tell pregnant women not to get, not to eat, tuna fish because there's mercury in tuna fish and at the same time you're um you're giving them vaccines flu vaccines and DTaP vaccines that contain huge loads of mercury much higher over 100 times what epa says is safe and none of them could answer that question paul Offit finally told me well he said to me bobby and you know paul Offit." My inclination was to like him. He told me, um, I got into public health because your father, I love your family and all this. My inclination was, you know, to, to like the guy. Then I started asking him questions and I could tell he was either lying or um, he just was unfamiliar with the science, but mainly he was lying. And on that particular question... He said to me, kind of in a patronizing way, well, Bobby, the thing is that there's two kinds of mercury. There's a good mercury and a bad mercury. And the good mercury is uh, the methyl mercury. The, the, ethyl, the, meth, the ethyl mercury in vaccines is good mercury. 
because your body excretes it immediately and the methylmercury in fish is bad. And I knew at that time that immediately that, you know, that is not true. His argument was not with me. It was with the periodic tables because there's no such thing as good mercury. And I had also read the studies on the excretion of mercury. And I knew by then there's a famous study by a guy called Thomas Burbacker. It was very, very reputable that NIH paid for where he said, no, the ethylmercury vaccine is much worse than the methylmercury in fish. It, is, it metabolizes into organic mercury, which is the most lethal kind to neurons in your brain. And it crosses the blood-brain barrier in a week rather than two months. And then it stays in your brain for 27 years. At least that's what they know, causing inflammation. And... um. I mentioned when he told me, he mentioned another study called by a guy called Picciaro, who's a CDC scientist, who had done these studies where he had, he had given kids peanut butter sandwiches or he had given the kids tuna sandwiches and then looked at their blood and the methylmercury was in their blood 54 days later. And he had given them a shot of thimerosal and looked at their blood and the ethylmercury from the vaccine had disappeared within a week. And so he cited that study to me, but I knew that that study had been discredited. Immediately, people started writing letters to pediatrics saying, wait a minute, where did the mercury go? Us because it left their blood. It didn't mean it left their body. And Pichero couldn't find the mercury in the feces or the sweat or the hair or the fingernails or the urine of those children. And then Burbacker came along two years later and did these studies on monkeys, and the same thing happened. The methylmercury was in the blood a month later. The ethylmercury was gone in a week, and then he sacrificed the monkeys, which means killed them, looked in their brain, and found out where the mercury had gone. It was all in their brains from vaccines. So it turns out the vaccine mercury is much, much worse than the mercury in fish, and they were either pretending they didn't know that because everybody had read those studies who, you know, who had anything to do with public health or they were, um, you know, genuinely ignorant. But Francis Collins didn't know anything about it. Who's Tony Fauci's boss? Oh, I knew. And then something happened, and this kind of gets to your initial question, which is these, um, a woman named Lynn Redwood gave me a... Uh, a document that she had obtained through um, a congressional committee. And the document was the transcript of a secret meeting at Simpson Wood, which is a Methodist retreat center in the wooded banks of the Chattahoochee River. And what had happened is the vaccine schedule changed in 1989. So I got three vaccines as a kid. My kids generation gets 72 vaccines, mandatory. And the big change happened in 1989 because they passed the Vaccine Act in 1986, giving immunity from liability to the vaccine companies. And suddenly the cost of downstream liability was removed from those companies. So there was a gold rush to put all these new vaccines on the schedule. And um, and by 89, they were tripling the amounts of, of mercury and aluminum in the vaccine schedule. And I, it takes four years for autism to be diagnosed. 
So you, the average age of diagnosis is 4.2 years. Well, by 95, you started seeing this explosion in autism. In my generation, autism rates are 1 in 10,000. By, by the year 2000, it was 1 in 600. Today, it's 1 in every 15 boys or 1 in every 20 boys in this country. And so it was, it was expanding exponentially. And everybody was wondering, where, where's it coming from? Within And there was a lot of mothers and other people were saying, it's the vaccines. I saw it happen. I gave my kid the vaccine. He was perfectly healthy and he became autistic within three months later, you know, after a series of seizures and fevers, et cetera. And the CDC back then, the concrete hadn't hardened on the orthodoxy yet. So they weren't just knee-jerk denying it. We just deny everything. At that point, they were kind of, people were still open to it and they were there was dialogue and there was not censorship. The, the press was writing about it back then. So CDC actually said, let's look at this. We'll do a study. And luckily, they have a database at CDC where all the answers to all the questions are and it's called the Vaccine Safety Data Link. It's the biggest repository for health and vaccine. They got all the health records from 10, 10 HMOs, 10 million, more than 10 million American health records. The top 10 HMOs also are their records there. And those records have every health claim, plus they have every vaccination down to batch. So you can look wow. at any vaccine and do a cluster analysis and figure out whether it's associated with a particular illness. And so they hired a, uh, a Belgian epidemiologist and biostatistician named Thomas Verschratten in 1999. And they said, look at whether the vaccines are causing autism. And particularly mercury, that's what they thought was doing it. And so he took one of the, the, the mercury vaccines, which is the hepatitis B vaccine, and it was given to every child on the day of birth. And it was the main suspect, that and DTAP, which also had mercury in it. Uh, DTAP is diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And, but he, first Stratton and his team, took the children who had received the DTAP vaccine within the, I mean, the hepatitis B vaccine within the first 30 days of life. And then the control group were children who had not. So they had either received it later than the first 30 days or they had not received it at all. And they were all clustered in one group. And when Verstraten ran the numbers, he was blown away because there was an 1,135% greater risk for getting an autism diagnosis among the kids who had had that vaccine in the first 30 days. And just for context, that's called a, a statisticians call that an 11.35 relative risk. A relative risk for smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years and getting lung cancer is 10. This was 11.35, so they know it. And by the way, relative risk of two equals causation as long as there's biological plausibility. So as long as it's plausible that this, you know, that what they mean by that is there's a relative risk between yellow fingers and lung cancer. But it's not, so people who have lung cancer, 
a huge number of them have yellow fingers. They've been smoking cigarettes. It's not the yellow fingers that's causing the cancer. It's a correlation, but it's not causation. Um, and so you have to say, is it biologically plausible that fingers are causing cancer? No. But if it is, if it's the smoke, that's biologically plausible. And a relative risk of two is considered causation, proof of causation. They, they had 11.35, so they knew then and there, CDC knew what was causing the autism epidemic. And they, they went to DEFCON 1, five alarm fire. They hit all the buttons. And they, they quietly summonsed all of the gurus of vaccinology, FDA, WHO, CDC, HHS, NIH, um, the top people in each of those agencies on vaccine, and then the all of the the, the four five companies, Lilly, Merck, Sanofi, um, Glaxo, and Pfizer, representatives of those companies, and then the academics who develop vaccines at universities around the country, the leading academic vaccine developers. And there were 52 people and they all, they didn't want to bring them to the CDC campus because they thought then they would be susceptible to a freedom of information request. And they wanted to make sure nobody got wind of this. And it was a secret meeting and it, um, it happened in uh, 2002 at Simpsonwood. And for some reason, which nobody has ever explained, they allowed it to be recorded. And I got a hold of the transcript. And it's one of the most horrifying things that I had ever read in my life. Because for the first day, all of these panjarums of public health are sitting there talking about how bulletproof the science is. And now we know it's causing autism. And there's no way to argue this. There's no way to win it in court. They talked about how frightened they were that the uh, lawyers would find out about this and that they would shut down the industry. And then the second day, they spend the whole day talking about how to hide it from the American people. And at the end, they said, we're embargoing this. Everybody has to hand in their copy of the study. Um, and we're all going to agree not to talk about this. And that's what they do. And then they go out and they fabricate these studies in Denmark. And, um, you know, and, and then there's a whole tale that after that of how they invent or, you know, they use biostitutes, which are the sort of industry friendly scientists and these in-house people at CDC to create a whole um, infrastructure of, of phony studies to try to, you know, justify that vaccines do not cause autism. I know every one of their studies and I can take it apart if anybody's, you know, if anybody was ever interested in saying it, we, you know, we've dissected everyone. So um, I wrote about it in Rolling Stone magazine and in Salon. And I, I published excerpts from that transcript and it caused a huge storm. And then um, Salon, I think three years later, withdrew the my um, my article and said they were stripping it from the site because it was scientifically because it was uh, it, it had been debunked. It hadn't been debunked, 
and that nobody ever showed me. They never told me in advance they were going to do that. They never gave me a chance to defend it. So no, no publisher does that. If somebody is criticizing your article, your publisher goes and says, he's on your team, at least in the beginning, until he's convinced that you're wrong. He comes to you and says, show me how to defend it because it's humiliating for them to drop it. They did their full fact-checking on it. They did all the fact-checking that, you know, that they're supposed to do. They knew it was right. And they took it down. Um, they pressured. They, and incidentally, David Talbot, who was the founder of Salon, condemned that move by Salon and said they had caved into Pharma. Um, Rolling Stone kept it up and refused to retract it and stood by it. And that was my first experience with um, with uh, the censorship. And what happened, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever talked about this live. When I was pu- about to publish this, um, we sent copies to the networks. And Jake Talbot called me up personally and said, I want to do this. I want an exclusive. I don't want anybody else to have it, and we're going to do it the day that Rolling Stone publishes it. We're going to do a huge story on this, and this is horrifying, and it needs to get out to the American people. And so the day that Rolling Stone came out, and we were very excited because um, Jake Tapper, who was then working, I think, was he working for CBS or ABC at that time, um, on the nightly news, and he had... I worked with his film crew for almost a month doing a, you know, filming the whole thing. And they had been down to Simpsonwood. They'd been all over the country. They had the whole story. He called me at around noon the day that it was supposed to air and said, something's happened to me that I'm humiliated about, which is for the first time in my life, corporate has ordered me not to um, publish a piece, not to go with a piece. And uh, so clearly the advertisers had told him, he said he was angry. Then within two days, he stopped answering my phone calls. And, um, you know, and that was, that was really my first experience with the censorship. And the censorship has been tightening ever since then. I've never been able to, I've been, since you know, I normally was publishing. I was publishing a, an op-ed every six months for the New York Times. I had a deal with them. They had come to me and said, "Will you give us one?" And that's the maximum you can publish for the New York Times once every six months. They said, "We want you to do that regularly," and I was doing that for many years. And then they just said, "We don't want to publish anything from you anymore." Um, not only about vaccines, but about any subject, because they didn't want to give me credibility. Um, the uh, the other, I I have not been able to publish. I published a couple of edit, I'll probably five editorials in HuffPost in two thousand eight, and that was the last. And three years ago, HuffPost removed all those, so you can't historically even access them which is really weird. No publication does that. And, you know, we now have them on our website. When we, when we knew they were going to do that, they started doing it with all the old vaccine articles. They went back and did the purge. But, you know, the liberal media, the liberal blogosphere, which is supposed to be the antidote to corporate control of American democracy, salon, slate, um, 
Daily Beast, BuzzFeed, Politico, Mother Jones are all in bed with pharma. And, um, you know, and then the New Republic, of course, and all of these, uh, they will not. They will not uh, publish anything that challenges the pharmaceutical orthodoxy. And, of course, the television networks, um, I haven't been on for, you know, over a decade. Um, I was on Bill Maher because he doesn't have advertising and is very courageous. And then I went on, um, I've been on Colbert and... uh, and I was on the Daily Show, and John Stewart was on there, but they were both forced to re- retract. They had pulled off it on a week after me to say everything he said was wrong, and have never allowed me on again. So the blowback they got was, you know, was clear. And really, the only way that we could communicate to people was through social media, and uh, um, the social media now in the last five years has slowly imposed a really dramatic draconian censorship so that um, you know Google and Bing which are the search engines are deliberately rigged to make sure you don't get any real information about vaccine safety um, yeah I, I, I'm, I'm aware of that especially uh, as of the last couple of days of preparing my notes for this conversation and, you know, wanting to find some of your past articles and things like that. And, the, you know, the first 10 hits that come up on Google. All CDs and WHO. Yeah, and they're all, they're all extremely critical and biased and unscientific, uh, you know, right. to my eye. Right. They don't, uh, there's no citations. It's just this has been debunked. And by the way, the fact checker app which they all use, the fact checker service, which they all use, they use PolitiFact, Pointer, or Fact Checker, and they're all funded by Bill Gates, who's the world's biggest vaccine maker. So, and they uh, say openly, brutal. we are going to rely on WHO, which is Bill Gates' organization, and CDC, which Bill Gates is one of the biggest funders, and all of the pharmaceutical industries are funders to the CDC Foundation, which controls the CDC. And um, we're going to rely on, essentially, they're saying we're going to rely on the industry to tell us um, what is true, what is vaccine misinformation. They, they use the term vaccine and misinformation as a euphemism for anything that challenges government or pharmaceutical industry pronouncements about vaccine. It actually is not has nothing to do with misinformation because... There's a constant flow of misinformation, of vaccine misinformation on CNN, on Facebook, on um, on uh, on all of these other, you know, Pinterest and and Google. But they, the only stuff they're they're not trying to get rid of the whether it's true or not true is irrelevant. Whether it encourages people to, to get more vaccines and to not think about risks. I will be allowed on, even if it's completely erroneous, false, unsupported by science, and something that is, you know, has 10 citations, but is critical of vaccines, is wiped out and blacked out. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. When I got into herbalism over two decades again, one thing that I became immediately obsessed with was medicinal mushrooms. Now, as someone who's never liked to eat a 
culinary mushrooms. I was terrified when I first found out that there are these incredible natural medicines uh, inherent to mushrooms. And so I tried them out. I started taking the reishi, the lion's mane, the cordyceps, shiitake, etc., and immediately felt an effect. However, over the years, as I learned more about the industry, I discovered that not all mushroom products are created equal. So when I found this company Lifecycle recently, I was completely stoked to find out that they make biohacking grade liquid extracts that are extremely potent and absolutely next level. All of their mushroom liquid products have strictly US and Australian grown ingredients, which is really important because most of the mushroom products, in fact, about 95% of them come from China and they're not all bad, but some of them are. So now more than ever, it's really important to have discernment when it comes to buying herbs and different products and health supplements. So I like to buy local and I always demand the very highest quality for anything I put in my body. And frankly, so should you. Another cool element of life cycle is they infuse kakadu plum in all of their extracts. This is an amazing fruit that has more vitamin C than any fruit in the world. So when it comes to fortifying your immune system, this is an amazing add-on ingredient. And I like to use their lion's mane for uh, better REM sleep and microdosing with other types of mushrooms that I won't mention here on the show. But uh, these particular products have just completely upgraded my game and my immune system and I'm really stoked to bring them on board and to share them with you. I've also negotiated a 15% off deal for my loyal listeners like you. So here's how you get a hold of some of these amazing biohacker level medicinal mushroom extracts. Go to lifecycle.com. That's L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L, lifecycle.com. Enter the code STORY15 at checkout and save 15% off at lifecycle.com. And now back to the interview. It it really is a becoming a science fiction dystopia. Yeah, as you it is. You know, if you, I, I mean, I'm obviously a few years younger than than you, but even going back to my 30s and thinking about how information was shared in the media and the beginnings of social media, uh, if you could just snapshot that versus the way things are now, I mean, we've come so far in terms of limiting access to truth for the general public and the suppression of voices that oppose those powers. Uh, I want to ask you specifically, this is the question I get, um, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this, but whenever I pose questions about the safety of vaccines, et cetera, then the first question I get is, oh, so you're an anti-vaxxer. And, um, and I, w- I would say if I had to answer that technically, yes, uh, but more so that uh, I would just be concerned that there uh, is very little, if if any, safety testing for vaccines. So what's the deal with the testing model? Is it, 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 it does it exist at all? Are any of them ever well, tested here's for the safety? Thing about, here's the thing, and I'll, I'll tell you what happened. And by the way, I'm not an anti-vaccine. They call me anti-vaccine because it's a way to marginalize me and to dismiss me. And instead of you know, actually debating the science, which they can't afford to do. Nobody will ever debate me. Nobody has ever debated me. Every time somebody agrees to debate me, they are dissuaded from doing so prior to the debate. In fact, last uh, six months ago, the Connecticut State Legislature asked me to do a debate. Um, they were going to stack it against me. That It was me against five Yale medical school virologists and immunologists. 
and we were each going to get eight minutes. So I would get eight minutes and they would get 40, but that was fine with me because I only need eight minutes. And, um, and I flew out on a red eye from LA to Hartford and I got there in the morning and went to the debate in the state house and it was me and five empty chairs. So they never showed up. That's happened to me on every single debate that I've tried to do over the past 15 years. They will not debate. And they they try to silence our side by saying, oh, those are just anti-vaxxers. Most people they call anti-vaxxers are not, uh, you know, naturopaths who were ideologically anti-vax. They're mainly moms of children with intellectual disabilities who were completely pro-vax and were vaccinating all their kids according to the schedule until one of the kids got sick. And then they went and started doing the research. And yeah, they went to the internet and put an internet site called PubMed, which is the NIH site, which has all the peer-reviewed publications. And you can go on there and, you know, you can see what the science actually says. And these moms are very, very well informed. So what happened with vaccines is that, like I said, I had three vaccines when I was a kid. And today's kids, they get 72 doses of about 16 different antigens or vaccines. And um, the it changed in 89. But what happened is in the early 80s, they started, I got the three vaccines I was born in 54. In 1986, there were 11 vaccines. And one of the ones they mandated around 79 or 80 was the DTP vaccine, the diphtheria tetanus and pertussis. And it was a very dangerous vaccine. And it killed a lot of kids and it caused brain damage. I think one in 300 kids were getting injured. It's now discontinued. You can, in Western countries, white countries, Nobody uses this. All the the agencies have banned that DTP vaccine. It, it is Gates gives it to every child in Africa. 161 million kids a year are getting this horrendously dangerous um, vaccine. And the Danish government funded a study, a really important, really profound, good study that shows that girls who get that vaccine are 10 times more likely to die within two months than uh, children who do not get it. So it is a lethal vaccine. It's probably killed millions of people. Uh, Gates and WHO know this. There's been a lot of international debate about that study. And they continue to force it on African countries. Um, the, the countries have no choice because the WHO controls the, all of the funding for their health departments and their HIV programs and threatens them if you don't you know, meet our metrics for vaccinating your kids with DTP. We're going to pull that money. It's a very, very bad. It's a real colonial system. But anyway, the DTP in this country was introduced here and in England simultaneously, and it caused a lot of injuries. And people back then, you could sue the companies. Oh, there were lawyers bringing lawsuits and they were getting, you know, $20 million judgments. And the uh, Wyeth and the, and the other vaccine companies, Wyeth is now Pfizer, but back then it was called Wyeth, went to Congress and said in 86 and said, we're getting out of the vaccine space. And they said, 
we are losing $20 in downstream damages for every dollar we make in vaccine sales. And we're going to stop making all vaccines. You, and they said, you cannot make a vaccine safely. They said, and that phrase um, is actually in the statute that Congress um, passed. It is that they're, uh, that they're, they're unsafe. You can't make them safely. And, um, and so they said, we're going to get out unless you give us immunity from liability. So in 86, Congress passed, and then Ronald Reagan signed a statute that is called VICOR, the Vaccine Act, and it says no matter how, um, how sloppy the line protocols are, no matter how negligent the company is, no matter how toxic the ingredient, no matter how grievous the injury to your child, you cannot sue them for liability. And so the companies which already said this vaccine is so horrendously dangerous that we can't make it safely now has no incentive to make it safe because nobody can sue them. And, and then they looked at it and they said, holy cow, now we've got a product that the biggest cause for every other medical product is downstream liability. And, and that's been taken away. Not only that, Vaccines are exempt from safety testing. Why are they exempt? That seems almost insane. I'm sure there's people who are watching this and saying, he's making that up. That couldn't be true because everybody tells us they're safety tested. But I mentioned that to someone today and they went, that's impossible. Yeah. Of course. I mean, are you kidding me? Well, here's the reason. It's, it's an artifact of CDC's legacy as the public health services, which was the predecessor agency or CDC, and the public health services was a, was a military agency. And that's why people at CDC um, have ranks like Surgeon General, and they uh, have military ranks, and they wear uniforms, because they're, they're essentially, they're still a quasi-military agency. And the vaccine program was conceived as a national security defense against biological attacks in our country, so they wanted to make sure if the Russians attacked us with uh, anthrax or some other biological agent that we quickly could formulate a vaccine and then deploy it to the 200 million American civilians with no regulatory impediments. They said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to safety test it because medicines have to be safety tested. They have to be double blind placebo tested and that usually lasts five years. Because there's injuries that have long diagnostic horizons that have, you know, long incubation periods. You don't see cancer for five years. You don't see autism for four years. Food allergies, autoimmune diseases, you won't see them right away. You won't see them in a month or 45 days. You see them from years from now. So they, and they said, if we, if we do that, we'll never be able to get this out if there's a military emergency. And so they said, here's the solution. We won't call it a medicine. We'll call it a biologic. And we'll make biologics exempt from safety testing. Oh, my God. And so when there was... And, and then, crazy. by the way, there was... There wow. was so not a, they have down, no downstream liability. They saved $200 million doing the phase one, phase two, and phase three. And that's um, $200 million off each vaccine oh yeah. individually, right? To get it through. Yeah. And then the... Um, and then they're saving money 
on marketing and advertising. They have no marketing and advertising costs because these products are mandated for 76 million American kids and they're, they have very hard margins. And they just realize this is like a gold mine. It's like printing money, making vaccines, because all you have to do is get it on the schedule. It doesn't have to be safe. We don't have to safety test it. You just have to do some minor efficacy testing. And and it's not real efficacy testing. You're just testing whether people develop antibodies. You're not even testing whether it prevents the disease. Oh, it's a really easy walk to get new. And, you know, we sued them two years ago. Um, uh, ICANN, which is another organization, and Children's Health Defense, or me acting as an attorney. We sued HHS and said, show us one vaccine that has had um, placebo testing. And HHS, after a lot of litigation, came back and said there are not. Not one. Not one of the vaccines now on the schedule has ever been tested against a placebo in pre-licensing studies. So um, if they don't do those tests, nobody can tell you what the risk profile is for that product. It can't tell you whether that product is averting more harms than it's causing. And, you know, we look at all the science. We have 1,400 studies on our site, on the Children's Health Defense site. And I can show you for almost every vaccine that the likelihood is that it's causing far more deaths and injuries than it is averting. And, you know, the, the idea that we're mandating those products to healthy children, something's wrong with that, you know, and particularly to unwilling people, people who say, no, I don't want to do that. Say so you're going to have to do that anyway with an untested product. So what happened is in 89, they started piling on between 89 and 91, particularly, there was a huge explosion of new vaccines on the schedule, including for stuff that there's no reason to have a vaccine for it. You know, uh, hepatitis B, it's not casually contagious. It's something, it's a disease of prostitutes, promiscuous gay homosexuals, and, um, and drug addicts. A one-day-old baby has zero, 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 zero chance of, of any harm from that disease. And so, um, but, they get, but they were making money on it. No, um, and... They had all these new vaccines, and you saw beginning that year in 89, you saw an explosion of chronic diseases. And in fact, Congress said to EPA, tell us what year the autism epidemic began. And EPA scientists came back and they drew a red line and they said 1989. But it wasn't just, it's all, it's three big categories. It's SIDS, okay, which, you know, is vaccine related. And was part of the D was first for people started first seeing SIDS with the DTAP, the DTP vaccine. But then three main categories of disease exploded beginning in 1989. And anybody who's watching this who is my age, which I doubt there is anybody because I know they're all like your age, but they, all, they can tell you they never saw these. We never saw people with peanut allergies when, when I was growing up. We never saw it till 89 or any or autism or any of these diseases, but the neurodevelopmental diseases, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism. 
the allergic diseases, food allergies, peanut allergies, anaphylaxis, eczema. Never even heard of it. Now it's everywhere. Oh. Uh, um, and asthma and anaphylaxis. And then the autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, juvenile diabetes, lupus, um, demyelating diseases, and then uh, 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 um, irritated bowel syndrome, Graves disease, Crohn's disease, all of these. There's hundreds of them. So there are 400, and there's 420 diseases that are listed on vaccine inserts as side effects, potential side effects of vaccines. The, and, and that's the only place that the vaccine companies tell the truth. Why? Because under the Vaccine Act, the only way you can sue a vaccine company is if they know of an injury and that is caused by their product and they fail to list it on the insert. So they list autism on vaccine inserts. They list all of those diseases that I told you are all listed as side effects on vaccine. They'll deny it everywhere else, but on the insert where it counts, they admit it. And all of those diseases, virtually all of those diseases that have become epidemic since 1989. And the companies are now making between 50 and 60 billion. When I was a kid, vaccine companies were making 287 million a year. They, they're making between 50 and 60 billion a year selling vaccines. But they're making 500 billion a year selling the remedies for injuries that are caused by vaccines. So they're selling my kids. Right. The EpiPens that are $600 a piece, the, uh, the albuterol inhalers for asthma, the, um, the Advair, the Adderall, Concerta, Ritalin, any seizure medication, the diabetes medications, the arthritis medications, all of these. And you think about this. If you... Well, I had measles when I was a kid. I had 11 brothers and sisters. We all got measles and it was a celebration because we didn't have to go to school for a week. It's not a big deal getting measles, you know, for us, if you're healthy. Um, the only people who died of measles, we, it was a one in 500,000. Think about that. We're dying of measles at 63 before the vaccine. One in 500,000. It was 400 people total. They were all... Um, people, kids who had severe malnutrition and they weren't making vitamin A. And, you know, this was before we had poverty programs. So you had these pockets of, of malnutrition in our country. And those were the people. But it, otherwise, it had already disappeared before the vaccine. You know, measles mortality had disappeared. 99% of measles mortality had disappeared before the vaccine was introduced. So you think about this. What, what is the cure for measles? It's self-curing. The treatment is vitamin C, vitamin A, and chicken soup. And you can't patent either of those. But if you give that kid a MMR shot, and that child now has uh, seizures or epilepsy or IBS or Crohn's disease or grave disease for life, now you've got a lifetime client who will never be cured or requires constant treatment with very, very expensive drugs. And if you look at the 20 top blockbuster drugs for all of those four companies that are making our vaccines, um, all of those drugs are for injuries 
that are known to be caused by vac or suspected to be caused by vaccines and that are listed on their inserts as wow. vaccine, you know, products. And a lot, it's weird to me that Democrats, you know, my party, who will, who realize how corrupt these companies are and say, you know, they'll say, yeah, of course they lie. They're, they're the worst companies. They manipulate, they lie. Their business model is, is criminal. Everybody knows that about those companies. And I mean, let take this, the four companies, Pfizer, Merck, Glaxo, and Sanofi have collectively paid $35 billion oh, since 2009, that's over the last decade, in penalties, criminal penalties, damages, fines for defrauding regulators to lying to doctors, lying to the public, uh, falsifying science, bribing, blackmailing public officials, or criminal enterprises. And it's part of their culture. It's part of their business model to, to you know, be involved in criminal activity constantly. All of these companies, I invite them to sue me if any of them disagree with me. And how do you think? So, and by the way, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Vioxx, which was Merck's blockbuster product, flagship product, till 2006, killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans. It was a it was a, drug, a pill that Merck marketed as a headache pill when Merck knew it caused heart attacks. Merck knew it because their clinical trials showed a lot of people were going to die from heart attacks. And in fact, when we sued them, we got spreadsheets from their bean counters saying we're going to kill so many people. We're still going to make a killing on this drug because we're going to sell so many. So they knew. And the problem is they didn't tell anybody. So those people, you know, a lot of those people who were taking Vioxx for their arthritis, for their headaches, you know, if they, if Merck had been honest and said it could kill you, a lot of them would have said, you know what, I'll take an aspirin. <laughs> and I'm not going to take it. But Merck had never gave them that choice. And it killed them. And then it ended up getting, they should have, the entire Merck board of directors and upper staff should have gone to prison for life because they murdered those people. You know, they knew they were going to kill them and they killed them and they didn't tell them. They didn't allow those people to avoid. It's criminal. What's the difference between that and murdering somebody? There is no difference morally, ethically, or, you know, and technically. And they got out of it by paying $7 billion in penalties and they withdrew the drug. That was in 2006. Why does anybody think, and the Democrats will say, yeah, they, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they kill people, they're murderous, they're pirate companies, but not when it comes to vaccines. With vaccines, wow. they're telling the truth. And by the way, the vaccines are the only place they can never get caught. Because the way they got caught on all of those other capers was that private plaintiff's attorneys who had clients who were injured or killed by the product sued them, conducted discovery, came across got documents that, that showed criminal behavior, walked those documents down to the U.S. attorney's office and said, you should prosecute them criminally. That's how it happened. The only place that can never happen is with vaccines. 
the vaccines, you can't sue them. So there's no discovery. There's no depositions. There's no document searches. They can get away with it and nobody will ever know. And, you know, what they've done is the one barrier would be the regulatory agencies who are supposed to be looking, but the regulatory agencies are utterly corrupted. Uh, FDA gets half of its budget from the industry, half. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. Talk yeah, about, and CDC, oh, CDC has an $11.5 billion annual budget and $4.9 billion is from selling, buying and selling vaccines. Oh, it's a vaccine company. They, these agencies own patents. CDC owns 57 patents. NIH probably owns hundreds. And when, when that patent is included in a vaccine or it is a vaccine, like with Gardasil, they own the Gardasil patent. They own the COVID patent, right? Then they get to collect royalties. So the agency gets money on every sale. Of every vial. Not only that, but individuals in the agency, there's four individuals at NIH who worked on the COVID vaccine. Those individuals can collect $150,000 a year in royalties. They, they capped it a few years ago. It used to be unlimited. They were becoming, you know, multimillionaires. Now they get $150,000 a year. It's not a regulatory agency. It's an arm of the industry. And it shouldn't be pretending to be regulating because it's not doing it. I remember when uh, Donald Trump was, I believe, nominated and running. He was talking a bit in the periphery about vaccines and uh, autism and things like that. And then I never really heard him bring it up again that I'm aware of. I don't follow things that closely. But is is he at all, do you think, aware of this and on, on the good side of it? Or is he just giving them a pass? He asked me to come talk to him about it when at the beginning of his presidency, actually in January of 2017, so right before he took the oath of office. He called me, he asked me to come to, um, to Trump Tower in New York and meet with him. I met, I spent a day with him and with Bannon and uh, Rince Priebus and Jared Kushner and Hope Hill and Kellyanne Conway and um, met with them for hours and explained to them the whole thing. And he said that he wanted me to um, help him create a vaccine safety commission that I would lead that would you know, be able to sort of oversee the issue and ask the questions and get the science actually done. Do the studies that we need, you know, order the studies that need to be done, the vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. What I've said to people is, show me a study that compares vaccinated population to a similarly situated unvaccinated population. And a study that shows that the vaccinated people have better health outcomes. If you show me that study, I will post it on my website and close down and leave and go back to Waterkeeper full time, which is what I want to do. Um, but we've been able to go, the CDC will not allow that study to be made. HHS will not. Tony Fauci, which you know funds $6 billion of studies a year, will kill any study that tries to do that. Will blackball any scientist that tries to do it. 
They have taken the vaccine safety data link, which is that database I told you, and they've closed it down so nobody can access it because they do not want people to do that study. And we have been able to go on PubMed and go into every corner and find that some scientists over the past 20 years have done versions of that study. And we found 60 of them, which I've posted at various times on my Instagram. And every one of them shows that the vaccinated kids are by far the sickest kids. They have the earaches. They have the emergency room visits. They have five to 10 times the special ed education rates. They have um, diabetes at three or four times vaccinated. They have allergic rhinitis 30 times unvaccinated kids. And, you know, you go through all of these different metrics and there's not one. We have not been able to find a single study that shows that vaccinated kids are healthier. They're always worse off. And, you know, I'm not asking, I'm not, I'm just asking for the science that everybody that we would do for any other medical product. You look at whether the people who are taking the medicine are healthier than the people who aren't. And they can't do that with vaccines and they know they can't and they, um, and they kill them. And, you know, um, it's, uh, that's a big problem. Did anything ever come of the meeting with Trump and his team? Oh, or did I'm it just... sorry. I got distracted. That's okay. He, um, <laughs> that was Trump... all good stuff. I'm just like, okay, what, did he just drop yeah, it? You know, no, but what he, what happened is he asked me to run the commission and we announced it. And immediately they got just a, a storm, a hurricane, typhoon of blowback. Um, from the industry. And I don't know what calls were made behind the scene, but a couple of weeks later, I think a week later, Pfizer donated a million dollars to the president's inauguration. And then he brought in Pfizer's handpicked candidate to run, you know, um, both of them, uh, Scott Gottlieb to run FDA and uh, Alex Azar to run HHS. And they were both handpicked, by, you know, they're both industry lobbyists, insiders, uh, vaccine company presidents that come in and run the agencies and they immediately shut us down. So the president arranged for us to have meetings with Fauci and Collins and we had these really extraordinary meetings during the first couple of weeks of his presidency. And then those guys were brought in, you know, the Pfizer people were brought in and they completely shut us down and they, um, and they killed any communication with uh, with me or our team. Oh, and we've never heard from them since. Wow, wow that that could have been an opportunity, right? Yeah, there for well, you progress. Know, you, you know, you know. One of the things I said to President Trump is, "This is not a heavy lift. All you have to do is authorize studies of the VSA. Just order CDC to let independent scientists into the database, vaccine safety database, and to look at the." the data in there and you know the answers are all in there and um so you, it's not like you have to you know say we're gonna change you know we're gonna um we're gonna kill all the vaccines and we're gonna do you know we're gonna change all the personnel or do something really a heavy lift that's momentous they have built an edifice by piling fraud upon fraud upon fraud upon fraud. And it's so lofty now and so unwieldy 
that all you have to do is kick one brick out of the bottom of it and the whole thing will collapse because it's all just a web of lies and fraud. And all you need is good science and good science will kill them. And that's why they can't let me speak. They have to say I'm anti-vax, which I'm not. If somebody comes up with a vaccine that does what they say a vaccine is supposed to do, which is to give you lifetime immunity from COVID with minimal health effects, like one in a million, which is what they say is acceptable. And, you know, I'm all for it. I'm not for mandating it. I don't think, you know, the government has a right to, to force anybody to take medicine against their will. We signed a lot of treaties saying governments aren't allowed to do that anymore, you know, after 1945 including the Nuremberg Charter we signed, which says you can't do that. You cannot force somebody to take a, you know, a medicine against their will or, or submit to a medical intervention against their will. Um, but I, you know, I would take a vaccine that gave, you, gave lifetime immunity and had no other bad side effects. I'm all for it. But let's say, let's make sure that it actually does that. And let's, let's stop lying to people. And let's stop hiding the science. You know, let's make sure that we actually have science that shows that they're doing that. So, and the response, you know, to me is to label me anti-vax and say I have, I'm a dangerous person and I need to be silenced. That people, that American people, cannot afford to listen to dangerous. You know, I might put dangerous thoughts and dangerous ideas in their heads, <laughs> and they call me anti-vax. And you know, listen. I've been fighting for 40 years to get mercury out of fish. Nobody calls me any fish. Right, I, right. Uh, oh, I'm not any I'm, right. I'm, You know, I, I like right. to have seatbelts and cars. It doesn't mean I'm, uh, I'm any automobile. You know, I want them to be safe. And, you know, I'm, I think we ought to be able to have a civil debate on that in a democracy. I think if you don't, you know, this censorship is... To me, it's like the end of the world. Have Democrats like Adam Schiff telling these companies you need to censor, you know, um, criticism of pharmaceutical products? That's shocking. I mean, my father and my uncle, um, you know, they they were like they said you can't censor anybody. They were angry when when I was growing up. Um, on your passports, it said you can't visit these countries, Cuba and China and North Korea. And my father and uncle were furious about that and, and told the State Department, change that. You can't tell, you know, Americans can go anywhere. We, if we can't win these battles in the market of ideas and the market of debate, then we need to change the way we're doing things. You know, we and in a democracy, you have to trust the people. Otherwise, it becomes a tyranny overnight. And you have to educate the people. And they're all based on the free, unobstructed flow of information. And now this company, in order to maintain this fraud, has had to shut down, you know, every aspect of us, of people like me communicating about it. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm not a marginalized figure. I win lawsuits against big companies you know, by persuading juries that the company did something wrong. You know, I've been involved in some of the biggest lawsuits in history, including the Monsanto lawsuit, which was just settled, which is a, 
for $12 billion, the third largest settlement in history. And I was on that trial team. I was on the lawsuit. I was on the trial team in the lawsuit against DuPont that's now the subject of the film Dark Waters. You know, if I was a crazy person, you know, judges would not let me near a jury. And, and I've been involved in hundreds of other lawsuits that have won by, by saying, you know, we're going to show you what the real science says. We're going to, and, you know, but, and I've been dealing with corrupted captive agencies my entire career. But I've never seen anything like this, you know, because these these agencies are actually buying and selling vaccines. It's like, listen, the EPA is a captive agency. EPA is an arm of, you know, of, of many of these industries of the, you know, of the coal and oil and chemical industry. And when we did the Monsanto case, you know, part of our proof was that they, the head of the pesticide division in EPA was fixing the science to protect Monsanto and, and falsifying defrauding science to protect Monsanto. And we were able to show that to the jury that they owned that literally the guy who was running the pesticide division was, was blocking for Monsanto and killing studies and falsifying studies and, uh, and, you know, um, Ghost right, allowing industry to ghost write studies and do all of these fraudulent criminal activities. I'm used to dealing with captive agencies, but this, this is like dealing with CDC is like as if EPA made half of its annual budget from the coal industry. <laughs> These right. people are supposed to be right. regulating pharma and they're making half their budget from right. pharma. And then they have a revolving door that is, you know, amazing. I mean, Julie Gerberding, who, who approved most of these vaccines, the MMR, she gave the monopoly to Merck, the, um, the Gardasil vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, the Zosterax, are all her gifts to Merck. She ran CDC from 2002 to 2009 left in 2009 and exactly 12 months later, which is the legal limit, she became president of Merck's vaccine division with $2.5 million salary and, you know, um, and stock options that are probably worth $30 million. <laughs> she just sold a bunch of her Merck's just a, a, a portion of it for $9 million. So that was her payoff for giving Merck um, licenses that were worth tens of billions of dollars. In summary of this then, you know, it's it's been clearly illuminated that there's massive conflict of interest between these regulatory agencies and private industry. And I'm curious how that ties in to the COVID issue and the possibility of forced vaccinations as being the ultimate end goal of this craziness. If you could summarize briefly your yeah, take on that. It's hard to summarize that briefly because that's a, a huge question because COVID is, has people have been trying to develop a coronavirus vaccine for decades and they've never been able to. And for a number of reasons, but the big reason is there is a 
phenomena that is peculiar to coronavirus vaccines, which is a phenomena that is known as pathogenic priming, which is the vaccine. um, All the vaccines that they've made to date have have provoked antibodies, but it's a bad kind of antibody. It's an antibody that instead of neutralizing antibodies which fight off the disease the next time they see it, it's something called binding antibodies that actually turn your receptors in your body into Velcro for the vaccine, for the um, uh, for the virus. And they make you much, much sicker than if you weren't vaccinated. And you can't tell until you're challenged, until you hit the wild virus. Exposed to it. And what happened is, after 2002, um, there were there was a huge international consortium that was putting billions of dollars into developing coronavirus vaccines. It was the Chinese working with Tony Fauci and working with a lot of the Western nations, and they developed 30 prototype vaccines, and then they chose the four best in class. There was a couple of spike protein vaccines and you know a bunch of different kind of vaccines, and they developed those four, and then they gave them to ferrets. And when they gave them to ferrets, the ferrets got great antibody responses, which is the metric that FDA uses to license new vaccines. So when, when a vaccine is licensed, they don't give a thousand people the vaccine and a thousand people a placebo and send them out to get exposed and then look at two years later and say what happened to you know both groups. That has never happened. Uh, what they do is they give you the injection and they see if you got the antibodies. If, if a month later, if you developed antibodies, and um, there's probably a lot of problems with doing it that way, but I'm not going to go into those. But what they found when they when they injected the ferrets, the ferrets got a very robust and durable antibody response, which what they what they are looking for, and they thought we hit the jackpot. All four vaccines work beautifully, but then something horrible happened when they exposed those ferrets. When they challenged them with the wild virus, the ferrets died. And they were blown away. They thought, oh my God, what happened here? And then they remembered. And by the way, none of the unvaccinated ferrets died. So the vaccine actually made the virus much, much worse. And they remembered back in... um, the 1960s, they had tried to develop a MERS vaccine, which was very similar for, to coronavirus. Mideast respiratory system, which is like, it comes from camels. And they had injected a bunch of, they, they had done the animal studies, had shown good antibody response, but they never challenged the animals with wild MERS. And went right to human studies, they gave it to 35 kids and they got great antibody response, but then when the kids were challenged with the wild virus, they got horrendously sick, and two of the children died. Wow. And they discontinued it, and then they didn't think about it for 40 years. And when they killed all those, 50 years, when they killed all those ferrets in 2012, they remembered that, and they went, holy cow, that's what happened to those kids. And then in 2014, um, Sanofi, did a dengue vaccine, which NIH was working on, Fauci's group, gave it to, um, and it they had 
they had some flags, red flags during their clinical trials that had indicated there may be a pathogenic priming problem. They went ahead and produced the vaccine and gave it to, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of kids in the Philippines. And when the wild dengue virus came around again, the kids who got vaccinated got horribly sick and 600 of them died. And today in the Philippines, I think there's 19 public health officials who are on criminal trial, um, you know, charged with criminal recklessness for killing those kids. So that's the problem with this. That's one of the problems. The other problem is really, it's a problem that they're going to solve by, you know, what I would call cooking the frog slowly. Everybody thinks when they, um, you know, when they hear, uh, okay, you're going to stay locked down until there's a vaccine. Uh, as Bill Gates said, a magical vaccine is that we can give to 7 billion people. They're thinking that, oh, the vaccine is going to do what we've been told vaccines do, which is to give everybody who gets one lifetime immunity and no, you know, major health problems. What are the chances they're actually going to get a vaccine like that? I would say zero. And that's my prediction. No, and I could be wrong, but I would say zero. And all you have to do is look at the flu vaccine. We've had the flu vaccine, a much simpler vaccine to make. We've had it for 90 years. And, um, and they're fine-tuning it every year and trying to make it better. And it's still, here's what the Cochrane Collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter of pharmaceutical science. You know, they look at all the studies and they're independent. They're not owned by pharma. And the, and the British Medical Journal have done three meta-reviews of all the science on the flu vaccine. And here's what they found. Number one, you have to give the flu vaccine to 100 people to prevent one case of flu. Number two, there is zero evidence that the flu vaccine prevents any hospitalizations or any deaths. And what Cochrane and BMJ said is, you know, the flu vaccine may be, and we don't even know if the one person is getting benefits, but because they were looking, a lot of the studies were industry funded and they thought they exaggerate the benefit. They said, it's, you know, what it may do at best is stop flu symptoms in one kid. Who cares? You know, what you're, try, you're, you're telling us we're taking a flu vaccine to protect the elderly from death. And they said also that the flu vaccine, which CDC tells people you won't transmit the flu to elderly people, actually people who get the vaccine transmit the flu six times the rate of people who are unvaccinated. So when you get that vaccine, you become an asymptomatic carrier of flu. You are spreading the flu. And um, so that is the truth about the flu vaccine. And coronavirus vaccine, you know, is much more difficult. And so the likelihood is that here's what I predict. I predict you're going to be seeing Bill Gates and Tony Fauci week after week dampening expectations about the vaccine. They were originally saying it's a magical vaccine we're going to give to everybody and everybody is going to get be immune. And they're going to say, well, actually only 
80% of people will get immune and then they'll say 70% and they'll say 50% and then they'll say 20%, but um, it's still worth it to have 20% and they'll try to sell us on that. Okay. And they'll have no data that show that the people we actually want to protect fragile elderly people with comorbidities, people with chronic disease, that any of them get any benefit from it. They're, they may be able to show that some kids don't get coronavirus, you know, three months after they got the vaccine. And then they're going to say, well, the vaccine, yeah, it's not actually lifetime immunity. It, the immunity only lasts for one year, one season, and actually maybe not even that, maybe only two or three months, and then you have to get another one. And um, and then, you know, they'll, they'll be able to cover up the injuries because there is no functional um, surveillance system for vaccine injuries. So if somebody gets injured by a vaccine, it, it doesn't say on their death certificate, there's no category for vaccine death. You know, there's no, the, and the doctors have to, are voluntarily, the, the only reporting system is the doctor voluntarily says the vaccine I gave that person killed them. If you get a vaccine and two days later you die of a seizure, most doctors will say that's not related to the vaccine. That was just, you know, a bad coincidence. And so you're not, and, and because there's no surveillance system that can actually do cluster analysis and machine counting, um, you'll never see it. So they'll be able to hide the injuries from the public, which is what they do with every vaccine. HHS's own study said that fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are ever recorded. Fewer than 1%. So that could be 0.0001%. You know, they, their study, their 2010 study on the whole system said fewer than 1% are reported. And they deliberately, that their system is designed to fail. And they want it that way because they do not want to acknowledge the huge, they, the, the actual rate of vaccine injuries in this country, according to that study, was 2.6%. And there's many other studies, including the clinical data from the companies that indicate that. That means that there are serious injuries of occur with every one of 40 vaccines, 37 to 40 vaccines. You have serious, serious injuries like lifetime injuries or permanent autoimmune disease. And all of these diseases are now epidemic. And it's not a mystery where they're coming from. I'm not saying vaccines the only reason we have a chronic disease epidemic because you know, our children are swimming around in a toxic soup today. You know, they're drinking fluoride from their taps, which is injuring them terribly. Um, they're getting glyphosate and pesticides in all of their food. They're being bombarded by 5G. And all of those things are contributing to this health epidemic in our children. But the worst one by far is the vaccines. You know, and I'm not saying that because of my opinion. I'm saying it because I read the science all day. And it's horrific. Wow. 
Well, thank you for uh, for illuminating all of this for us today. <laughs> it's, you know, I want to leave on a positive note, but <laughs> it's like, uh, wow, we're screwed. Um, I do have one final question that, that's, that's a quick one that I ask all my guests. Uh, you've taught me an incredible amount of information. I'm going to have to listen to this five times to take it all in, as are many. Uh, who have been three teachers or teachings in your life that have influenced you and your work? Um. Well, I, you know, I had a school teacher. I had a great school teacher called Skip Lorenz when I was a, a biology teacher. And then I, when I was a kid, that was the best teacher that I had in high school. I had a wonderful um, teacher on evolutionary biology named Robert Trivers um, when I was at, at, in college, and who's a very famous uh, evolutionary biologist. Um, I'd say the inspirations in my life, um, you know, my dad was a, uh, was a fantastic teacher and particularly, um, history and, and values. My whole, you know, family, my grandmother, my grandfather really tried to instill us with, you know, an idea that, um, of, uh, that our country was an exemplary nation and that, you know, um, that you you got happiness not through um, not through pursuing self-will, but of trying to um, transcend self-will and uh, and find a uh, some other compass, you know, a higher power or just service to other people. That that was, um, you know, that had a magical impact on people's lives and transformative, not of the people that you serve, but on the person who's, you know, that you're what St. Francis said, which was, um, you know, we are not what we accumulate. We are what we give away. And, um, you know, and I guess uh, I had a lot of Catholic priests in my life who were, um, who were extraordinary influences? A father called Father Creedon, who was our, fa- our family priest. I lived with Mary Noel Priest when I was in high school in Peru, um, in a in a mission there, who had an extraordinary influence on me. And then there's a lot of my family members, a lot of my cousins, um, my aunt Ina Shriver, who was my godmother. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky that I have a lot of family members, even my generation, my cousin, Timmy Shriver, who, um, you know, who inspire me. And I'm very, very lucky to be, have been surrounded my whole life with very powerful women and very powerful men who are all driven by idealism and, uh, and intellectual curiosity and a fearless intellectual curiosity. And, uh, you know, those things had, I think, have made my life a lot richer. So they've made me kind of willing to take risks and to, um, and to see my life as, uh, as a journey. Um, and, not, and also, my family was a very kind of odd um, combination of, of, of pious, Catholics combined with a complete irreverence, particularly for the upper clergy <laughs> um, and for just for human institutions in general. 
And it's a, it's a, you know, you have, I guess, who was it who said, was it Augustine who said that you have to be able to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time. And that's the, you know, that that's the sign of a, of a refined mind. And, and so I, I grew up with that ambiguity of people who were, who were deeply, deeply immersed in religious faith, but at the same time were very, very irreverent and skeptical towards all religious authorities and all secular authorities. And just said, you know, my father said to me when I was a kid, he said, people in power lie. And if you want to live in a democracy, you better be skeptical about everything that is said by anybody who is powerful. And, you know, I think that's one of the guiding themes that I've, uh, that has been an important part of my worldview. <laughs> Clearly has. Thank you so much, man, for sharing uh, your time and, and wisdom and experience today. Much appreciated. And uh, I look forward to sitting down again. And we did get to end on a positive note. That was actually <laughs> beautifully inspiring. And I can see how that influence has come through your life and your work, which is just a really a great way to sum it up. And uh, I thank you and we'll see you again. Thank you. Well, 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 we made it through another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this enlightening conversation with Mr. Kennedy. Man, what a pleasure it was to sit down with him. And uh, he was so generous with his time and wisdom and experience. And I just am in such admiration of his efforts to help protect people from the evils of the corporate empire (laughs) in all its ways. And uh, I'd encourage you to listen to this one again, man. I mean, I'm, I, w- I was sitting there during this conversation just going, wait, what? I thought I knew some of this. And just the, the depth of his knowledge and experience was absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, I'll be listening to this one again myself, trust me, to get some of the facts down. And I think when it comes to topics like vaccines and health sovereignty and environmentalism, etc., that um, due to the fact that these topics tend to render us so emotional that having someone just present the facts and the logic and the historical data for us is incredibly valuable. And honestly, I don't know how anyone could listen to this conversation and think that we can trust our health to the governments of the world and to the pharmaceutical industry. Not to say that all people working within those industries or governments uh, have ill intent and I'm sure many of them are well-meaning and quite integrous but the fact is at large due to the corruption conflict of interest greed etc and we are really in in a world of hurt right now (laughs) and I'm just hoping that we can wake enough people up before there's like door-to-door army squads of you know uh, uh, needle-holding stormtroopers Uh, I really hope it doesn't come to that and, uh, you know, probably won't. I'm going to think, you know, positively and hold best intentions for the future of humankind. But uh, man, we live in some strange times. And uh, I I think that how I'm framing this is really that we're waking up from a nightmare in terms of our civilization. And uh, the more people that wake up, the hundredth monkey principle will continue to kick in and more and more people by default will wake up. Uh, Those that are, I think, mature enough and intelligent enough to think critically and remain teachable and open-minded. I think many people that listen to this show would fit into that category based on conversations I've had with so many of you. 
you know, the brave souls that are willing and able to think outside the box and to reshape their opinions and points of view as they learn more. And that's what I'm doing here as well. So again, thank you for joining me. Next Friday, I'll be doing another solo community Q&A show. If you'd like to post some questions to the show, you can join the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. Post your questions there, and I will likely answer them here on the podcast in the near future. Let's thank our sponsors. First off, we've got Sovereignty. You can find them at sovereignty.co slash Luke. These guys make a couple amazing products. One of them wakes you up. One of them calms you down. They're all natural, made with fermented Chinese herbs and CBD. They're absolutely fantastic. They taste delicious and they're really easy to use. They come in a little packet. You stir them up in water and it's like having the most delicious tea ever that either lights your brain up or settles your brain down. That's Sovereignty.co slash Luke. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. Sovereignty.co slash Luke. Then we've got Cacao Bliss from Mindful Health. And you can find this at earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story. Cacao Bliss is an incredible product. I'm absolutely addicted to this stuff. I put it in my morning elixirs and coffee. It's got cacao and a bunch of other adaptogenic herbs. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, ceremonial grade cacao, super legit. A lot of cacao on the market, by the way, is swag. It's like really crappy. This is great cacao and they put nice blend of herbs in there. So I'm into it. Again, you could find that at earthechofoods.com slash Luke story. And for that one, we do have a discount code for you. The code is Luke 15 and that saves you 15% off. Last but certainly not least, our friends over at Lifecycle. Lifecycle medicinal grade biohacker quality mushroom extracts. And these are liquid extracts and they are potent and they work, my friend. Um, These are not, you know, your uh, powdered extracts that taste really good and are also effective. These are hardcore. These are hardcore. These are for the biohacker level. And you can put them in drinks and you won't really notice the taste, but I just put them right under my tongue and it's like, bam, wow. Uh, Lifecycle is spelled L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L. That's lifecycle.com. I recommend the reishi mushroom and the lion's mane. Also, the cordyceps is great, but the lion's mane might be my favorite just because it's so good for your brain, especially for those of you that are into the old microdosing. You know what I'm saying? Read between the lines there. Lifecycle.com. And the coupon code there is uh, also Luke15 for 15% off. And... uh, for those of you that aren't aware, I've been talking about it a lot, but you know this show will go on to uh, be published through infinity. So who knows when you're going to be listening to this, but the EMF Home Safety Masterclass that I recently created is now live. You can find that at lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. lukestory.com slash EMF Masterclass. Over five hours of video content, seven modules, six bonus videos, three free PDF downloads, everything you ever wanted to know about EMF and how to fix it. It's a incredibly robust and educational and entertaining online digital program to teach you about EMF. That's lukestory.com slash EMF masterclass. I know that was a lot of links. If you want to keep it simple, you can just go to lukestory.com forward slash store and you'll find all of my sponsors and my online course there as well as those incredibly valuable exclusive discount codes. That's lukestory.com slash store if you want to keep it simple. More than anything, you have to click on anything except the next episode. (laughs) 
just keep listening to the show, man. It uh, does me a great service. I love to share this information with people. And it's so inspiring to get the feedback on social media. People often, you know, do screen grabs and post stories of the episodes they like and shoot me emails and leave reviews. And it's just really fun to be able to do what I do. And so at the close of every show, I like to close it with a mini ceremony of gratitude. And I thank you directly, you listening to my voice right now. You know who you are. I don't know who you are yet, but you know who I am and uh, I know who you are as a collective. And I want to thank you for being part of the Lifestylist podcast community and um, enlightening yourself and sharing the show and enlightening others. It's a great service to, um, to everyone when we can openly share ideas while we still can for the sensors get us. But I think that we'll all bleed through and find other means of communication if we do get shut down for daring to ask questions about the safety of things that people want to shoot into our veins <laughs> as we did in today's episode. So thanks so much for joining me. See you then.